Hey guys, welcome back to the Jen Hatmaker Book Club Podcast. If you are listening to this over on our regular For the Love Podcast feed, welcome. Happy to have you. We like to like grab you and pull you in behind the curtains to see what we are up to over at the Jen Hatmaker Book Club. By the way, we would love to have you join us. It's the most incredible community and my favorite place on the internet. If you want some information, you can go to jenhatmakerbookclub.com. Got plenty of room for you. So book clubbers, obviously this month's book is Daring Greatly by Brene. Brene is one of those people that doesn't need a last name, right? So you're probably like, there's no way Jen's going to spend any time telling us about Brene Brown. Like we know her, we love her, but just in case five of you are out there, who've been living under a rock or in the wild corners of the world. Let me tell you about Brene, the author of our book club selection. She's a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Endowed Chair. She's fancy. She's also a visiting professor in management at at UT, Austin McComb School of Business here. And she has spent years and years and years and years studying courage and vulnerability, shame and empathy. That's her wheelhouse. She's the author of five number one New York Times bestselling books. And then in her free time, she hosts two podcasts, Unlocking Us and Dare to Lead. Now, Brene's insane schedule meant that she could not join us this month for our book club podcast. She's out doing all the things that she's doing. And in her stead, we are welcoming in one of my favorite people in this space, for sure, which is my very good friend and pro therapist, Kristen Howerton. Kristen and I have been friends for a decade, like good friends. Like we travel together. We go to each other's things. We talk every single week. We are we're really, really good friends. And when I tell you that she has literally been my unpaid go-to therapist through every hard thing I've experienced in a decade. I'm not kidding. She is so good at this. And she and I are going to talk about daring greatly. So real quick, if you haven't met Kristen yet, I can't wait to introduce you to her. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. So obviously that's why she's in this space. This is her, this is her zone. She is experienced with all kinds of disciplines, um, marital conflict, people on the autism spectrum, infertility, adoption, multiracial families, divorce, co-parenting, all of it. She also has a lot of experience working with people struggling with addiction, as well as those who love them. Kristen is the creator of the blog site and brand and book, Rage Against the Minivan, which she's been using as her own little coping space since way back in 2006. And her book of the same name came out in 2020. She hosts the Selfie Podcast, which she and I are going to talk about here in a minute. Definitely one to subscribe to if you haven't already. She is smart. She is wise. She is experienced. She is funny. I trust her with everything. She literally knows everything that has ever happened to me, every single detail in my entire life. She's that trustworthy. So I'm absolutely delighted to share with you my conversation with my beloved friend, incredible therapist, Kristen Howerton, as she and I discuss Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly. So 
one thing that sometimes happens here in book club is that I exploit my friends and today is no exception. Hi. Hello. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to see you too. This is fun. When we were noodling Darren greatly, like inside the book club community, and we were just talking about how can we add value to this month's book? Like what, as we are sort of unpacking this as a community and we're talking about mental health, we're talking about vulnerability, we're talking about shame. My, I'm sure they told you when they spoke to you, but I, I mean, I told my, my book club team, I'm like, we have to have on Kristen. Like this is her, this is her zone. This is what she does well. This is, she can just speak so brilliantly right into every single thing we want to talk about. And so thank you for saying yes. Cause it's not like you don't have a lot going on. No, it was fun. It was fun. And you know, I read Daring Greatly a while ago. Me too. And so I reread it this month in anticipation of this. And man, it's such a good book. And it was yeah. so interesting to read it a second time because my kids were younger the first time I read it. And yeah. just going like, oh, I have yeah. some new insights. Oh my gosh. Totally. I read it like you when it first came mm-hmm. out. And that is when my life looked entirely different than it does right now. Same for you. Literally same for you in kind of all the same categories. Yes. Different partner, Uh younger kids. Yep. I mean, married for life. Married for life. Of course we were. Mm -hmm. We were young Baptist brides. Sure were. And so I too, like I reread it also this month and it was almost like a new almost new to me because it just rang differently. So I've already told everybody kind of all about your credentials and anybody who's been around me for half a minute has seen us together a million times. And so I want to just dive in. I've got, I've got a few questions for you and then the community has asked some questions. And so you're good at that. You are good on the fly. You are good at a quick response. And so I wouldn't throw that at anybody, but I, like I said, I exploit my own friends and that's (laughs) how that was understood. Let's talk about Daring Greatly. Can you talk about your response to Daring Greatly the first time around and then maybe the second time around and what was new, what was different, what you heard differently maybe? You know, I feel like the first time around, the the thing that was resonating with me at that time was vulnerability, right? So my fears, my tendency to try to look perfect, which is an ongoing struggle for me. I mean, you and I are both Enneagram threes. I, I was... We, I, a drinking game. How soon until one of us say that we're both Enneagram threes? I'm I know. Like, it's going to be in the first we, question. because You and I have the same. Yeah. We do. We have some of the same DNA in terms of the things we, we struggle do. with, our shadow sides, That's right. so to speak. And one of mine is certainly trying to look like I have it all together. Yep, I had a therapist once tell me, you know, you're like a duck swimming in the water and on the top of the water, it's smooth. And Mm. underneath, it's just frantic paddling. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I think about that all the time. Mm. And I'll even, I've shared that story with my boyfriend and he's like, he'll be like, you're being a duck right now. Ah, I hate when they use our little things against us. I did not share that with you to help. Yeah, no, but it's, he's usually right. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. And so I think- that really resonated with me previously was like my need to just allow people to see my vulnerabilities yeah. and stop trying to pretend like I had it all together. 
this time around, the shame stuff was really convicting for me, especially around parenting. That was like a, dang it. Dang it. I do use shame. I do do this real quick, Kristen, because in the intro, I didn't really mention ever. Talk about, just so everybody can frame this up correctly. Talk about your kids briefly, how old they are and what their deal is, because this will help people go, ah, I see now why parenting and shame is like the new front door. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, my kids now are 16, 14, 14, and 12. Like you, got a mix of bio and adopted kids. Like you, spicy kids, all four. Mm -hmm. All four spicy, very (laughs) vocal, very strong. Yep. Strong kids. And I love them. I actually, I, I'm loving the teenage years. I think we have that in common too. Like I, this is my favorite stage, but you know, I just, it's, it's a lot. I'm single parenting and I, my, my fuse will get short and I will revert to shame. I I do do that. I was raised with that. And it's just a real, it's a knee jerk for me. If I'm not working on my stuff, if I'm not being mindful, when a child frustrates me, I move to shame real fast. Hmm. And like, I know you, that can about Can you give myself. a specific about that? What do you mean? When you say you move to shame, what does that look uh-huh. like? Well, here's a fun combo. I move to shame with sarcasm. Oh, so I, don't, I know what I you know. mean. Yeah. No about that. You know, so it'll yeah. look like, you know, a kid gets in the car and I'm like, oh, so you just chose no deodorant today. Well, the teachers are probably in the teacher's lounge talking about how bad you smell because I'm trying, I'm trying to make an impact, right? Yeah. I'm trying to change behavior with shame. Hmm. So what can I say that will cut them down so bad that they change instead of meeting them where they are? Yeah. And that's a benign example. I've certainly said worse. Yeah, me too. About more tender things. Mm. I have, you know, just that that quick bite. And then, you know, Brene talked about this in the book in a work context, but I, I do the same. It's like you don't have the time or you think you don't have the time to sit down and process. So you just do a quick one-off shame dump, right? Like rather than sitting down and problem solving with like, how can I help you? Where your deodorant? You know, it's just, let me just dump a little shame out there. A little jab. It's quick. It's easy. It is. It's effective. Yeah. You can, it's, it, there's an economy of words, you know, you can boil it down to one sentence and it, it lands, it lands the target. I mean, you and I, again, are similar in this and that sarcasm is kind of the vernacular of both of our homes. It's interesting too, to hear you say that you were raised with that. That's a conversation in book club right now, which is how many of our shame patterns, both when we use it as a tool and when we experience it internally is we grew up with it. Like that is, that was the currency of like our relationship with our parents. Are you comfortable at all sort of discussing what the tone in your home was growing up, like what it is you, you picked up in the atmosphere? Oh yeah. I mean, I grew up in a very evangelical home and I had a mom who did use shame as, you know, behavior modification. And I often felt like I wasn't accepted for who I was. You know, I was a pretty creative kid. I went through a stage of, you know, wanting to be goth, wanting to be different, you know, wanting to be seen as unique and was just really shamed for that. But then I was also shamed a lot for not falling in line with 
why didn't I look like a youth group kid? And, you know, why am I hanging out with different people? And I never felt like who I was at the core was of value. And I also grew up in a, in a performance-based household, right? So praise was given for a good piano concert, a good solo at church. You know, praise was given when I got good grades or I was active in you know, clubs and things like that, which none of that is bad in and of itself. Of course, we want to praise our kids for that. But the result is that because I wasn't praised for inner qualities, I'm still at 46 walking around life looking for external praise as opposed to looking at my inner self. Hmm. And this is made worse just kind of by our innate makeup, like being threes. We already, that is already our life's work is to have internal worth and value outside of what we do and how we succeed. And then you grow up in a home that both rewards and punishes the flip sides of that behavior, man, we're screwed. Well, and then you and I went into a public profession. So that's, that's a fun party. Shock Shock that we chose that, right? No, just looking for validation all over the internet. Someone like me. (laughs) It's so true. But you know what's funny is I have found, as I've done my own work, I'm just not that interested anymore, Yeah, which is not great. It's not great when you're in this profession. I know what you're saying. I I actually think that's a hopeful thing that you just said, because that that tendency, which is actually common to a lot of people, wherever they're at on the spectrum, can be overcome. We have resources and tools to live in this world in a way that isn't so thirsty and starving all the time. And so I kind of want to, everybody obviously knows that you are a therapist and you have dealt with every kind of person and their needs, every kind. I'd like to hear from your perspective, having done this hell 25 years. Is that yeah, yeah. Off and on, off yeah. and on. Like this has been your work. How, yeah. how do you specifically define vulnerability? And do you agree with Brene as she discusses this? Cause she, one thing that she said is vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage, which is a really optimistic way to couch vulnerability. What's your experience here? What's your, what's your sense of the concept and how it feels in our bodies, minds, and hearts? Yeah. I mean, vulnerability is to me, it's an internal process and an external process. So the internal process of vulnerability is that I actually have to be in touch with my feelings. Mm. And in order to do that, I need to give myself space to feel my feelings. And Brene talks about it so beautifully in the book. So many of us had developed habits and processes and even addictions to avoid feeling our feelings. Mm. Mine is busyness. Yeah. I am I am that person. I will make myself busy to avoid feeling hard things. But I think most of us have some strategies in our life to avoid feeling hard feelings. So I can't be vulnerable with others when I can't even feel my own feelings myself. So that to me is step one of vulnerability is creating the time and space to feel what I'm feeling, to sit down and go, oh, you know, why, how did it feel when I had that experience with another person? Or how am I feeling about this kid's struggle? Or how am I feeling about my relationship with my ex right now? And then the second step obviously is external vulnerability, which looks like, then sharing that 
with others and sharing my feelings, my experience, allowing other people to see my foibles and my failings and and my joys too. It's both, right? It's it's absolutely both. For me, honestly, sometimes my vulnerability looks like or my lack of looks like I don't want to share dreams or mm. ideas because I don't want to then mm. fail. So I don't want to speak an idea mm-hmm. until I've reached the idea. Good point. It's not always the hard things. Sometimes it's, not. it's right. the, the shiny things too. I actually think Absolutely. you're really good at this. Now, of course, you've done a lot of work around this and you're very self-actualized, but I experience you as vulnerable, not just in our little private friend group where everything is safe. But I experience you like that largely public facing too. And which is all again, encouraging because we can develop this. We can develop a sense of vulnerability in a way that is a strength and it's courage. One thing I want to talk to you about, and you and I have talked about this a million hours. Brene touches on it in the book. It's, I want to talk about narcissism for a second. You're 46, I'm 47. A lot of our, the women in our communities are roughly our age you know, either side, more or less. One thing I'm noticing about us about here, about this stage in life is we are developing the chops. A lot of us for the first time to truly recognize narcissistic behaviors in some of our relationships that maybe were present in our marriages that we allowed to flourish inside of our work relationships. I I did not have the language for that in my twenties, not even thirties, honestly, especially because you and I grew up in the, in the Christian woman space, which we uphold narcissists. That's what we're there for to encourage them and do their dirty work and, and be in their enablers. And so I'm saying this because this is a conversation we're having in book club right now, which is like, Whoa, I think I'm identifying narcissism in my world. And, and then of course the coping mechanisms that we develop around it. So one thing Brene wrote was when I look at narcissism through the vulnerability lens, I see the shame-based fear of being ordinary. I see the fear of never feeling extraordinary enough to be noticed, to be lovable, to belong, or to cultivate a sense of purpose. My question is very, very broad, and I'm going to give it to you and you do whatever you want with it. I just, you're one of my teachers around this. You're one of the people that really helped me understand narcissism deeply for the first time. Can you talk about what it looks like, how we misinterpret it? I'm going to just speak for myself, how we, it's not misinterpret make excuses for it, maybe how we enable it. I think we do both. Okay. I I just want to hear you talk about it. Well, you know, at its core, I mean, Brene talks about it really well at its core. Narcissism is a, a deep, deep wound to the self. And so people with narcissism I mean, we we all have traits of narcissism also. That's the truth. So we're all projecting strength where we feel weak, where we feel vulnerable. But the narcissist is doing it at at a level where it becomes hurtful to those around them. But at their core, people who struggle with narcissism have a very low sense of self-worth. And so their coping strategy for that is to project a big sense of self-worth and to become to other people incredibly charming, incredibly likable. They may make themselves indispensable. There's a variety of strategies that narcissists use. Another strategy they might use is to put other people down. And narcissists are smart. They're socially smart because they've learned this coping strategy really early on. They're going to look at the world around them and say, how can I 
manipulate the people around me to feel okay about myself. Now, the empathy piece for the narcissists in our life is that they're in deep pain. That doesn't make their behavior okay. So it's a yes and. Yes, they're in deep pain, but we still have to hold boundaries with the narcissists in our life, especially the ones that we can't not be in relationship with, whether that be a parent, a spouse, an ex, a child. And so it's that two-pronged approach of like, yes, we want to have you know, empathy for them, but then we also have to have boundaries. And boundaries with a narcissist looks like disengaging, disentangling, not enabling, as you said. It looks like, sometimes it looks like no contact. Sometimes it looks like, you know, completely shutting it off if if their manipulation is really harmful to us. Sometimes it looks like there's a technique called gray rock, which is that you don't give a narcissist extra attention. You're just uninteresting to them. You told me that. You told me that. I think last year, I think you taught me that that term. Yeah. You're just nothing. You're just right. It's not a high engagement. It's not, it's just a zero, which that's the fuel, right? Like be it good or bad. The engagement is the fuel. Well, because, you know, for me, the narcissists in my life have played on my shame. And usually that shame is around you know, me not being a good enough parent or what have you. So then what happens is when a narcissist makes a dig to me, my shame gets enacted. And instead of talking about the process, which is it looks like you're trying to use shame to tear me down, what I do is I put my gloves on and I take my earrings off. And then I've given them exactly what they want, which is me looking upset. Mm. I'm unstable. Mm -hmm. I'm And then they can go, look at her. She's Uh crazy. So number one, dealing with a narcissist is looking at my own shame. Because if I'm not operating from a place of shame, Mm. those attempts are not as good. It doesn't work. Mm. The reason it worked on me for so long is because my shame was sitting right under the surface. So Mm. as as soon as somebody said something Mm. that triggered me, I was. I was like, it's go time. Yeah, it was a partner. It was like a willing partner. Totally. So I want to stay on this just for one more second because... Again, you've really helped me understand this ecosystem of being in a relationship with a narcissistic person and then what that, the tendrils of it, because one of the primary tools of a narcissist inside his or her relationships is gaslighting. And that is not something I don't feel like I deeply understood until last year, maybe even maybe the year before, but can you just discuss what gaslighting is? And then ultimately, like also how it lands, how it makes us feel and how we can learn to develop resistance to that. Yeah. So gaslighting and gaslighting is a hot term right now. A Mm -hmm. lot of people are throwing it around and a lot of people are using it incorrectly. Gaslighting is a technique where a narcissist or anyone, normal people do this in in a fight, normal people gaslight. We've probably all done it. But gaslighting is essentially when you're in an argument and in an effort to win the argument, you make the other person question their reality. And you you basically just continue talking as if about something that you're, you're talking as if it's true until the person relents and believes it. Give an example. I'm sorry. That's, I'm putting you on the spot. But like... Sure, sure. So let's say that I'm in an argument with a co-parent and they want me to do something and I have said no. So rather than accepting the boundary, they say, well, I guess you just don't care about X, Y, Z. 
And they will keep saying, I guess you don't care. I guess you don't care. So that's a form of like, I'm going to speak a reality into this conversation, into this fight. That's not true, but I'm going to keep saying it as if it's true until you believe it. So that's one example. I mean, another example is someone flat out lying to us, is someone being dishonest. When we have a nag of distrust or feeling like something isn't true and we speak it and they go, you're crazy, you're paranoid. And so gaslighting usually involves them using our shame points. So one shame point for me is I want to seem flexible. And so a shame point might be you're being inflexible when I hold a boundary. And then I'm like, oh, I don't want to be inflexible. Let me never mind. You know, you're paranoid, you're jealous, all kinds of ways of throwing back at you something valid that you're saying, something valid you're concerned with. And then they're going to use your shame against you. Mm. It's insidious because it's really effective. It's very effective. And again, that's, you know, narcissists are very smart. They use our shame. And so we, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, it's hard to know when you're being manipulated or gaslit because our emotions get riled up. So we go into our limbic brain. We go into our fight or flight rather than being able to step outside ourselves and look at the process like, oh, wait a minute. And you you can become better at that. I've become much better at that. I mean, now when I see those attempts, I will even say, oh, it looks like you're trying to shame me into feeling like a bad mom because I'm not relenting. And so I'll make a process comment. When we're in an argument with someone else, in a conflict with someone else, there's process and then there's content. And the process is how are we relating to each other? And the content is what we're fighting about. And when we're up in our emotions, we get focused on the content. That's good. And we don't notice how we're being manipulated. Mm. Oh, I just felt like you just read me my mail. It's hard. Really really fixated on the content. We both do. We both do because we both get defensive. Because So defensive. And we're getting defensive because we're not sure of ourselves. Mm. Right? I mean, if we feel fine mm-hmm. about what's being hit against, we're not defensive. We would go, You're, you sound like a crazy person when mm-hmm. you say that. I know that I'm not XYZ. But, you know, that's that dance. That's yeah. the dance with a narcissist, is they hit us in our most vulnerable spot. And then we react in our most vulnerable spot. Well, you guys, what an incredible conversation we are having with Kristen, right? She's been a licensed therapist for more than 25 years and also one of my favorite people. I'm not just in the world, but definitely in the mental health and wellness world. She's just so wise. And I am so delighted that we are getting to talk with her today. Um, So as we discuss this idea of daring greatly and all the vulnerability that that requires, Kristen has reminded us that we have to create the time and space to feel what we are feeling. And then, sorry, we have to share our feelings and our failings, the joys and the true fabric of our experience with other people. And I know this is not an easy thing to do or to navigate. It's just a lot. My therapist friends like Kristen, and of course my own personal therapist, Carissa, have been the only real way for me to process the truly hard and confusing and impossible things. And even the good things too, you guys. So 
as always, I am going to show up here as a cheerleader for you and always for therapy because the single most effortless, accessible way you can take that first step and schedule that first therapy session is with BetterHelp. BetterHelp is professional counseling that's literally at your fingertips. You just open that laptop or you hop on the phone and you're there. Their licensed therapists have a broad range of expertise categories that can handle it all. Depression, stress, anxiety. You have it, they can handle it. They make it easy and free to change counselors if you need to. You can start communicating with a therapist literally in under 24 hours and you will get timely and thoughtful responses. There's just no time like the present to embrace vulnerability and begin working through whatever small and big feelings are happening in your own world. Good news for you. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash for the love. Y'all join more than a million people who have taken charge of their mental health. So that's betterhelp.com slash for the love. Do you think we struggle holding boundaries and limits in one hand and vulnerability in the other, because maybe this is a girl thing. Maybe I'm just projecting, but in some ways it feels like we have this idea that if I am vulnerable, that means I need to be soft. It means means my boundaries are fluid. Uh fluid. Vulnerable looks like that. They're not in diametric opposition, right? Like how do we hold that tension? You know, the tension is because we don't understand boundaries and vulnerability. Because if we truly understand them, they're not in tension because mm-hmm. they're completely separate things. I can be vulnerable and hold a boundary at the very same time, you know? And what that might look like is, you know, hey, maybe to a kid, like, hey, I'm struggling with my own self care right now. And so I am not going to babysit your homework anymore because I'm struggling with getting my own things done. So I'm being vulnerable, but I'm also holding a boundary. Hmm. I like that. That is high level work right there to not sacrifice one for the other. We get to be both of those things. I want to ask you a handful of questions that we, our members have asked. So these are obviously coming from real life places and real life relationships and real life conundrums. And this is normally what we would pay you for by the hour because you're a therapist. (laughs) This is the stuff that you do. Here's the Well, on that note, I do have to like caveat that this is not professional therapy, right? I got to put that out there for my license that, (laughs) you know, this is a casual conversation, (laughs) not to be confused with actual therapy. Here's the first question. You've done this. (laughs) How do you come to terms with the ending of a very close friendship? You know, the friendship was at times toxic, but it doesn't make the ending of it hurt any less. Yeah, I love this question. And it's so resonant for me. I have to tell a quick story. I'm in the process of organizing old photos. I had like boxes and boxes of old photos in my garage. And so I've been trying to sort them and like make sense of them. And, you know, I was telling my boyfriend, I'm like, this just feels really emotional going through old photos. You know, he asked me the question. He said, which of the old photos were the hardest for you emotionally? And I said, you know, it's weird. It wasn't the old couple photos, the marriage photos, because I've processed that. I've been divorced for five years. My ex lives down the street. We're in relationship. 
the hardest photos for me, I mean, I could almost cry saying this, was looking at old friendship photos that I'm not in relationship with anymore. Women that I was in relationship with for over a decade that I'm no longer in relationship with. I think we really underestimate friendship breakups. And because we underestimate it kind of as a, at a societal level, we don't know what to do with it or how to grieve it. We don't have a space for grieving that, right? And we have a space for grieving a breakup or a cutoff with a parent or the death of a parent. We don't really know how to grieve the loss of a friendship. And I think it's bigger than any of us want to admit. I think it's a really big deal. And I'm in the middle of that, realizing like I have not processed some of these friendship breakups. And so I think it's like just like processing anything else. We might need to talk to someone about it. We might need to journal about it. We might need to give ourselves, you know, some kind of a ceremony or closure thing, you know, because it is, I think it's really hard. And I think it's especially hard because oftentimes we don't process that with the other person either. Sometimes it's just not healthy to do so. So I just want to give, you know, normalize that a friendship breakup is a really big deal. Yeah, it is. It's a really big deal. And you're right that we don't give a lot of space to that conversation or a lot of resources around that sort of grief. And I appreciate you saying that that is a normal way to feel and that maybe it's a little bit less painful if we just give it a little attention. Exactly. To say, this is okay that I feel this way. This is a normal way to feel. And let me kind of nurture myself through this process. Here's another question from a member. It's not that you're going to speculate on this. It's that you're an expert. How do you move beyond the identity of mom and wife? We've done one of those. I have no idea who I am without these qualifiers. And as my children are getting ready to leave the nest, I'm terrified of facing me. We're not, you and I are not far behind this. It feels like we are, but we're not. No. And I resonated so much with this question because I think You know, we talked a minute ago about how so many of us have coping strategies for not feeling our feelings and habits and behaviors. One thing we can do as mothers that's very tempting because there's a social reward for doing it, it feels like we're doing something good, is over-focus on our children so that we don't have to feel our own negative feelings. And I really fall into this. And so if I am overly focused on my kids, my own pain is numbed a little bit. And no one's going to make me feel bad about that, right? I'm not drinking under a bridge. I'm not shooting something into my arm. I'm just being a really good mom. But I'm being a really good mom at the expense of myself. And we know that it's problematic. I mean, you know, Brene talks about how the best thing we can give our kids is modeling, right? And if I'm modeling being a martyr, not having good self-care, not having good sense of self, What I'm really modeling is that this is an okay way to be as an adult. And so for me, it's it's constantly thinking through who am I and what gives me joy? What are the things that I love? What are the things that are going to nurture me throughout my entire life, not just during this temporary time of having kids? And it's a hard balance because kids are needy. We do need to be pouring into it. But I think it's so vitally important that we think about who we are at our core. And for, you know, for me, I mean, it's different for every person. For me, it's like it's taking the time to go for a walk. It's allowing myself to sit and play piano. It's 
going to the theater? Like, what are the things that I love outside of being a wife and mom that make me tick, that make my heart swell, that make me feel like I'm happy to be alive and doing those things and giving ourselves the space and permission to do it? I love that. It's hard. It is, except I'm sitting here having done that work for a year after shedding unexpectedly the title of wife. And I mean, hell, you know, you and I are super similar. I got married when I was 19. I I haven't had an adult minute that I wasn't married. And so last summer, I remember just thinking, I literally do not know what this is going to be like. I mean, I didn't even have a pre-marriage season to look back on and try to pull from. Like when I was 25, before I was married, I was a ba- I was a sophomore in college. And yeah. so I moved out of a dorm into a house with a husband, a hundred same. <laughs> and so I can say a year later and you can say five turns out there is life there. There is life beyond even what we would have probably said our two most important roles, wife and mom. I mean, or two of our favorite, at least we could say that if you will be generous toward your own heart and your own preferences and your own passions and your own hobbies and your own relationships that aren't in those categories, there's a lot of life there. And it's fun. Oh, absolutely. It's fun life. And I think that that's important for women who are married or not. Like you have to have that sense of self. You, you know, even if you're happily married and you're listening to this going, oh, I'm, I'm glad that's not me. It's still important to cultivate your sense of self. All of us should have an identity outside of our marriage and our children. It's That's the most healthy thing, right? And you will have a stronger marriage if you have a better sense of self and you're pouring into yourself as well. You know, that's not taking away from your role as wife or mom. It's adding to. That's right. Here's the next question. Again, some people have precedence for this. This is something they can draw in from their childhood. And so a lot of people don't, which is how do I talk to my spouse and kids about vulnerability? You know, if that wasn't at all, if that was not a common practice in our childhood homes, it's a new operating system to introduce to our families. Absolutely. I mean, I loved this question because I think this is also a thing that we do is, you know, and this is often women, we read a book, we decide that we're changing our lives and now we're figuring out how we're going to get everyone else on board, right? And my answer to this question is the first thing that you need to do is get it right yourself. And that's going to take a long time. <laughs> our, our tendency is to go, I love this book. I can't wait to explain to my spouse or my partner or my kids how they need to get on board and change. Mm-hmm. Of course, we all do that. Uh-huh. I mean, I uh-huh. Literally was talking to my boyfriend last night about like, oh, here was this chapter. But, you know, we can't force other people to be vulnerable. We cannot. We can't talk them into it. We can't read for them. And so the best thing that we can do is to be vulnerable ourselves, work on it ourselves, change ourselves, and other people will change. You know, the family, the, a marriage, it's all a system. It's all a dance. And when we start doing different steps... Other people will too. And so I think the best way to, you know, deal with people who you would like to be more vulnerable is to model it and change it, change your language, change your behavior. Eventually, you know, things will change. The other step too is, you know, you can be vulnerable in talking about wanting more vulnerability. You know, there's that. But we 
we can't change other people. We can't talk other people into it. It's funny because I there's this old fashioned idea that as parents, vulnerability will be seen as weakness and the teenagers will take us down. You know, they sense, right. they do sense right. weakness. It's not a lie, right. but it's not weakness. It, it isn't, that's the wrong word. It's gentleness. I remember telling, I got something really wrong with a kid last month really wrong. I blew it. It hit a shame and a fear thing inside of me. And I said every wrong word. I exploded. My feelings were completely misdirected. I projected, I gaslit, I blamed, I blew it. I really blew it. And I spent a minute thinking, I don't care because that kid did something wrong, which that kid did. So that's what that kid got. And so I came back and said, I don't love that choice. That is the same. I'm not happy with that choice, but I wish so much that I had handled that differently. Here is what that choice made me feel inside. It hit on this fear that I have and this little thing that I feel some shame around and I just panicked. And here's what I said. And that wasn't fair. And this wasn't true. And this wasn't true. And this wasn't true. If I could go back, you either gave me that phrase or maybe Brene did. I don't remember somewhere. I picked up the phrase. If I could go back when we are trying to make amends, when we are like going to go ahead and go into a vulnerable space where we weren't. And I was like, if I could go back, this is what I wish I would have said instead. That level of vulnerability with a kid is like magic. I mean, it is like an instant magic pill that they respond to. I respond to that when someone treats me like that. I mean, it takes all the wind out of my angry sails. And so it's powerful. It's a very powerful tool. If it's not weak, it's powerful, actually. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting about that. There's a psychological term for it, and it's called a corrective emotional experience. And that is when a parent has done something wrong and then goes back to the child and says, I'm sorry for that. And there's research that shows that the corrective emotional experience, a childhood full of those, really, really helps. So the point is not to be a perfect parent. We're all going to make those mistakes. But if we can then go to our child and repair, that's huge for their psyche. Huge. And so I'm always trying to do that too. But yes, it's it's very vulnerable. It's really vulnerable and scary to go back and go like, I messed up and I was wrong. Especially with teenagers because it's right. like, okay, are they going to use this against me? And they Am might. I, they might. Am I undermining my own authority? You know, because we think like we just need to be the right, you know, because I said always. so. Yeah. 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 But it's really powerful when we when we can admit that we've been wrong. And then when we model that, they will model it back. We have a phrase in our house that that's like, you know, my bad. Like, that was my bad. But like, if I say that to my kids more, my bad, you know, it's, it's small and it's short. But if I say that more, then when I say, hey, you know, you left your room a mess today and I told you that it needed to be clean, my bad. Instead of, you know, but, yeah. but it's, they're learning it from me because I'm, because I'm saying it even when That's I don't good. want to. Right. We go first. We just go first. That's like a good principle at all times. Here's another question. You and I both are going to relate to this one. 
from one of our members. She says, okay, how do we let go of our shame so that we stop making life choices that don't serve us to prove to ourselves it's not true? For example, I had a couple of events in my childhood that made me feel stupid. Now I ruminate over conflict situations or discussions to soothe myself from the anxiety that I sounded stupid. I need and want to be respected for my academic and intellectual abilities more than for being me. I don't know who me is and I have made career choices, not for what I like, but to prove to myself and others that I'm smart. I feel so disconnected with myself that I don't know what I like. How do I get to the real me so that I can find joy and meaning in what I do? I don't remember writing this question and sending it in, but I could have. (laughs) Totally. I know. I know. Oh, boy. I mean, you know, there's a couple strategies. Number one, of course, is going to be go to therapy, you know, especially for that childhood stuff when we find that our childhood wounds are creating narratives for ourselves in adulthood and creating touch points where we're really sensitive Therapy is the best way to address that. Now, I recognize that therapy is inaccessible for some people. It's expensive. If you can't get into therapy, there are great workbooks. There's great books to talk about that kind of stuff. And then it is, and and she mentioned it, like, I don't know who I am. It's We have to create the margin and space for us to figure out who am I, what do I like, and how do I feel? Those three things are so vital. And they sound really trite and they sound really basic, but a lot of us don't know the answers to that. And those answers change, right? They change from day to day, from month to month. So creating the space every day, who am I? What do I like? What, you know, what, what makes me happy? What makes me sad? And then what are my feelings? I hate to say it, but it's, it is a discipline to do those things. Mm-hmm. It is to, to give ourselves the space. You're right. And, and, you know, for those of us that are performance oriented, I'm not putting that on a to-do list. I'm putting a bunch of dumb things and I'm going to leave that for the very last, which means it'll never happen. So it's putting that on our list, like really prioritizing it. The good news is I think if there's any hope there, I have seen this and I know you certainly have in your work, even the most traumatic childhood wounds. I mean, the most tra- they can be overcome. It's not that they go away. It's not that they, it's not that we wall them off, but we are not necessarily, it's not a life sentence to be doomed to those wounds for the rest of our life. It's so painful sometimes to go back and excavate when something is 40 years old, you know, and it's, we've built a hundred layers on top of it, of the way that we operate in the world, but it's also not impossible. We've seen it. You've seen it. Like I know that you have seen with some of your clients, incredible healing, even decades after the fact, wouldn't you say that that's possible? Oh, it's a hundred percent possible. I mean, I, I feel like with trauma, I often use with my clients, the analogy of like walking around with a broken foot. Right. And so we'll develop all these strategies to not put too much weight on it. And then it burdens the way that we walk, you know, we're tender, but then we don't want to just take the time to go into the doctor and like do the surgery on the foot And then we're going to have a life of reduced pain going forward. You know, a lot of us don't, our natural instinct to pain is avoid, 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 avoid. But that avoidance really creates problems for us. It creates problems in our personal life. We can have physical manifestations, you know, in terms of like sickness or pain. We have problems in our relationship with our parenting. But if we will take the time to kind of fix the underlying issue, it changes everything. But that requires us walking into pain 
And so we don't want to do that. It's counterintuitive. Like, why would I walk into pain? But when we do and take the time to deal with it, it's really powerful. You couldn't be more right. And the problem is, amongst many things by avoidance, is it comes out sideways. It doesn't uh, just it go always neutral. Comes out. It no. doesn't just go into dormancy. No. It comes out. We start poisoning our relationships. We start acting any number of ways. We're passive aggressive or we're aggressive aggressive. Or, you know, it it does it does have a cost. So either we're gonna like steer into the curve and face it head on and pay the cost there, or we're gonna make ourselves and everybody else pay. Yeah. And so and it it's gonna keep it's gonna keep yeah. coming out. It's going to keep coming out. It is. It's like you're squeezing a tube of toothpaste. It's going to come out the side eventually. Uh-huh. You know, so it's like we do the work or it just keeps coming out the side. It does. And I think back to her, sort of the beginning of her original question, if we, if we avoid, if we make that choice, then I think what we discover, if we can look backwards and, and track it, is that we end up making the same dysfunctional choices over and over and over. We choose the same unhealthy relationships. We choose the same dysfunctional environments. We repeat the same like toxic patterns because we refuse to learn the lesson. And so we're like, ah, this again. And so it really can set us free. Absolutely. I mean, when we have negative core beliefs about ourselves from childhood, until we change those core beliefs, we spend our lives trying to confirm or deny those core beliefs. They become the rudder for everything. And so when we can fix those negative core beliefs, we behave very differently. We interact with everyone differently. Mm. And it is a vulnerable thing to do. And that's kind of the conversation that we're centering around here. It's, it's enormously exposing to go into those, the most tender of places and do that work. But wow, it is really the path of freedom. Okay. We're wrapping up here. First of all, I don't know how to ever pay you back for the, I'm going to say 40 million hours of free therapy you've given me. You know, that's a, not a lie. <laughs> okay. First of all, I think no, you've it's given not. it back. I oh. think it's a reciprocal. You and I both know that's a lie. You think and you have not kept me completely sane over a few years of my life. When you are giving me advice, this is me. I'm like hanging on your every word. I take notes. All of our other friends in our group were like, Kristen, that was good. Thanks for saying that to June. <laughs> okay. Okay. Wrapping it up. This is obviously in book club. You and I are readers. We would just like to know, and this could be whatever. I don't care what it is. What are you reading right now? Or what have you read lately that you like? Or what's a book that you're like, this is a must read. Okay. I'm looking at my, what have I read recently? Why do I always draw a blank? I read oh, no, all same, the time. same, same. I could have finished okay, a book 10 my... minutes ago. And if you asked me if I'd read a book, I said, I haven't read one in five years. Same. But then I also, I, I'm at the age too, where like, if I'm watching a show, I have to watch the review like previously on, because I can't remember a show I watched a week ago. I, by knowledge, I know. could, you oh. can go back old school. If you like, this is an old timey favorite that is like a go-to Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to mention a couple that I've recently read. Jenny Lawson's new one, Broken in the Best Possible Way. Oh, I haven't read that one yet. I mean, first of all, she's so funny. She's, you know, like the female David Sedaris, just all of this observational comedy. But in this book, she really dives into her own mental health. She deals with anxiety. I deal with anxiety. Even if you don't deal with anxiety, it's a fun read. It's an interesting read. But if you do, it was just like, oh my gosh, so good. I just finished Jesus and John Wayne, which is that sort of account of 
Man, have you read that one yet? I've ordered it. I have it. And I haven't read it yet. So it's basically an account of the sort of Christian marriage of politics and the evangelical church. And I know we were both steeped in that. And it was like reading, it was reading a history book of my life from an outside perspective. It was very fascinating. I think every Christian should read it. And she does such a good job of presenting it factually. She's not critical. Now, you know, you can't not read it and go like, oh, you know, (laughs) yeah, we need to make some changes in the church. But I think it is an approachable book for every Christian, no matter where you're coming from, to really take a, it's like a sociology look at the modern American Christian experience. Did you meet her? Did you interview her? I did interview her. She's so smart. So smart. Yes. Okay. I'm going to pull that out of the slush pile. All right. Last question. Like, what are you working on? What's next for you? This is a weird year. So much of our work is weird. And we've pivoted and reimagined. So like what's, what's on the docket and what's coming up? Yeah. So I have a podcast. It's called Selfie Podcast. It has been focused on self-care, but we are pivoting. I have a new co-host coming on, Matthias Roberts, who you know. He's also a therapist. And it's funny that this is similar similar to the format that our new podcast is going to be in because we will be taking questions and then answering them as two therapists. So that's going to be a big segment of the show. People can write in, ask us questions. So if you liked this, I think you will like the New Direction of Selfie podcast. And then he and I are going to do like a pop culture review of what's happening, you know, what's happening in pop culture psychology-wise. Like you know, let's talk about Britney Spears and what's a conservatorship and and what does that look like and why are people ever put in a conservatorship or, you know, okay, there's a conversation around narcissism in in this TV show. So it's going to be, you know, we're both professionals, so it will be somewhat serious, but I think it's also going to be, it's going to be fun. Well, both of you are fun and you're both like weirdly in tune with pop culture. So this is a strange right, left, brain I know. skill set that you have yes, it to is. be like incredibly sober-minded and professional, this like high capacity therapy language. And then like in the weeds about celebrities and nonsense. And of course that's why we're friends. Oh, I love that. When does that come out? When is, when does he on board? October 22nd. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So same heading, same place that they've ever listened to selfie, selfie podcast. just new, mm-hmm. new co-host. I yes. love Matthias. I, do too. I love this. I love this collaboration. Yeah. I think that you have nailed a good co-host here. Okay. And then what else? Is that it? Is that the main thing coming up? You know, paperback is coming out in April. So ramping up for that book stuff. And then I am really working as a therapist more, more than I used to be. I'm working at onsite, doing marriage and individual intensives there. And then I have a private practice where I'm seeing clients. So I'm kind of moving. I've been moving a little bit out of writing and blogging and just back into the mental health space, which has been fun. And so where do people find all your information if they're interested in therapy? Yeah. KristenHowerton.com. There's a little link on there to my counseling practice. And then I'm Kristen Howerton on all the socials. Mm -hmm. Also, Kristen is wicked funny in case you're new to her. Like you can splice and dice with the humor. (laughs) 
with the best of them. Okay. Hey, thank you for being on today. And just for always being so generous with your expertise and your time and what you know, and you're so good at what you do. So, 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 so good. All right, my friend. Love you so much. Love you. 